Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome to episode two, I guess, of Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith, your co-host. And I am your other co-host, Caleb Castro. Yeah, we're... Good uh, to be... Yeah. No. I was going to say the exact same thing. Well, fine. <laughs> we can both it's good say to it. be with... Okay. It's good, it's good to, to be, be with, with you. you. <laughs> this is... Uh, <laughs> what a mess. It's good to be with you once again as we... Uh, Dive again into the topic of nature and grace, part of our broader series, The Christian and Culture, laying background and foundations for this discussion of issues of Christianity and culture. We need to understand the basic theological categories that undergird that discussion, and one is this relationship between nature and grace. So by way of brief review, last time we went over a very big picture of the various views of nature and grace. We talked about how the Roman Catholic view was of grace perfecting nature. Uh, we talked about the Lutheran view. Essentially, grace ignores nature or passes over nature. And we talked about the Anabaptist view where basically grace replaces nature or... There was another word. What was the other Anabaptist one? Uh, grace obliterates destroys. nature, yeah. destroys nature. Thank you. And then we talked about the typical Reformed view, which is that grace renews nature. Uh, now, we only hit that briefly because the rest of what we're doing in the series is going to be making a case based on that position for how Christians should engage culture. But what we wanted to do today uh, is give some of the scriptural confessional background and the case for that view of nature and grace, the view of grace renewing, grace restoring nature. So that's what we are going to do, the Lord willing. That is what we're going to do. And I suppose a good place to start, well, uh, we can talk a little bit here about, um, first of all, the fall too, creation and the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of need creation before the fall. It's true. That does come first. <laughs> yes. In, in the beginning. Yes, in the <laughs> beginning. I've recently begun a series preaching through the Gospel of John, and when you say in the beginning, you're talking about the beginning, not just any old beginning. <laughs> um, but just as that's where John begins, it's where we have to begin as we look at this idea of nature and grace. Uh, as we hinted at last time, uh, what you think about nature and grace is going to have a lot to do with what you think about issues like creation, the image of God, the state of the original creation, and then what is lost in the fall, and then what is regained in redemption. And so we need to sketch these doctrines and the issues pertinent in them to our nature and grace discussion. So, creation. We need to lay out how was man created, and particularly how does nature and grace, how do those come in in terms of the original creation, and what? why does this matter? Yes. So, 
Creation, what is it? In the beginning, God created. So for those with their Bibles, uh, they're with them or nearby, or you've already, you know, uh, that you know this creation, uh, this creation uh, narrative in Genesis 1, God goes and in, in, in lays forth by his authority, through his word, and by his uh, spirit, speaks things into existence. Uh, after forming the heavens and the things of the earth and the and the beasts, the, uh, the fish, the birds, I know those aren't in order, uh, God created man. Um, and here we have in particular that well-known passage from Genesis one twenty six. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And then God gives every seed-bearing plant uh, and, and tree with fruit for food. So, um, yeah, here I'm, I'm using the Christian Standard Bible uh, at this moment. I do like to switch between certain versions. But uh, right now I'm uh, using the CSB as one of my favorites for Hebrew translation. So what do we make of this, uh, Andrew? What are a couple key things here? Well, for one thing, you got to be careful about those order of things of creation because you wouldn't want to be accused <laughs> of, like, say, holding to a framework view or something. Uh-oh. We'll get into that. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Dun, not, dun, dun, not, dun. not this time. Or will we get into it? This, I don't know. Who knows? It's really hard. It's often hard to tell where we're going and how we'll get. <laughs> well, there's, uh, I think, like, uh, just as a sidetrack, a sidetrack of that, I mean, that that is an interesting thing for, again, another discussion. But uh, what we're not going to be handling here is the days of creation. That That's uh, that's another big one, right? Literal young earth, old earth, uh poetic device mythology whatever so maybe another time yeah although i mean what you think about that may well and really in certain ways will affect how you deal with some of the rest of this but what we do have is first off we do have um on the sixth day the special creative act of man man is created differently from the other creatures and from the other things of creation God forms him out of the dust. God breathes life into him, gives him a soul, gives him a spirit, and with that gives him the image of God. To read from chapter 4, section 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, and then it goes on to list several of the important details of this, with reasonable and immortal souls, so that's one thing that we see that's different from other creatures. Endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. So that's important as we're going to talk about the image, this knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it. And yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. And then the next part... I don't know if we'll, I might save that for a little later. It talks about the command, uh, the covenant of works. I don't know yeah. if that's pertinent to where we're going right now. It's, it, there's a, there's a, some relation there, I'd say. We'll, we'll see how, how we tie in. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over creatures, over the creatures. So we see several aspects of this creation, and then we also see the logically distinct and subsequent act of God making a covenant. I guess we were going to get there. <laughs> Sequence. <laughs> We plan things. Can't not do sequence. <laughs> so, what do we learn here that helps us in understanding nature and grace? Uh, so, we have reasonable and immortal souls. This is not something that other creatures have. Sorry to say, not all dogs go to heaven. They don't have <laughs> eternal, reasonable, immortal souls. Um, they're not your children. Sorry, wah, I'm going to veer off wah. into... We'll just leave that one aside. I don't want to go on a rant from which we'll never recover. Um, but yeah, so this is something distinct to man. And then there is this knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, which constitutes the image of God. Now, why does that matter when we're talking about nature and grace? Well, this knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness is what is damaged, is what is shattered in the fall. In fact, some of the older Reformed theologians, um, I can think of, for instance, Ursinus and his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism and others, they go so far as to say the image of God is lost in the fall. Uh, other theologians, more recent theologians, moderate that a little. They say the image remains or shattered fragments of the image remain. In fact, I've got a quote from Bavink I might read here in a second. But yeah, we have... And this is important because, as we talked about before, like, for instance, with the Roman Catholic position, they believe what was lost in the fall was just the superadded gift, the abilities to subdue and suppress concupiscence. That's quite a different position from what Reformed theology, as we see here in the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism treats it very similarly, uh, pertaining to what constitutes the image and what is lost in the fall. Andrew, what, what is a concupiscence in a nutshell? So in the Roman Catholic view, sin, sinful desires, sinful inclinations do not become sin until they are acted upon. So concupiscence is the what accounts for these sinful desires. It is this predisposition of natural man to sin. Now, they would say that exists as much before the fall as after, with the difference being before the fall, there is the super added gift to subdue concupiscence, and then once that's lost, then sin reigns. Um, this is very different from uh, the reform position regarding sin, which treats sinful desires as themselves truly and properly sinful. Right. Like, uh, just for example, with that, um, I, I can't recall if we brought it up last time. We probably did. But just for a, a reiteration, then, you know, we think of things in, in, in Matthew 5 during Jesus' teaching of the, of the Beatitudes, uh, which is really just an expansion on the law of the kingdom. Uh, he says in uh, Matthew 5, 28, uh, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, and likewise, he says also that uh, in 522, uh, anyone who is angry with his brother is, you know, is, is also uh, subject to uh, the fires of hell. So, yeah. so already right there, even though that's a, a New Testament teaching, the Lord is expanding upon what is the law in right in God's eyes. And 
so th- this will tie into a question then of how how to which we'll get into but how how does uh the law in a sense function before the fall which in, in a way andrew you've already read from the westminster catechism uh, implicitly uh, if i recall confession for, sorry from the westminster confession the wcf uh, that God, and likewise, what we have in our Heidelberg Catechism in question answer nine, doesn't God do in, injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer says, no, God created man with the ability to keep the law. You hear that? God created man with the ability to keep the law. So there, there, there's a conflict there then if we're talking about, uh, uh, uh there being a, a sin, a, a desire or temptation, uh, in, 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 uh, drawing into sin before the fall uh that would mean that that temptation or desire rather specifically is sin and really i mean these things that i listed here the knowledge righteousness and true holiness uh, which itself draws from the language of colossians three ten and ephesians four twenty four, these things which constitute the image all of them presuppose uh, revelation and particularly they presuppose revelation of law knowledge requires an object there is something that must be known uh, and in this case it is the knowledge of of who god is and what he requires righteousness the same presupposes a law it, it is the law that dictates what is righteous and then true holiness too that is perfection that is wholeness that is completeness under the law and that's why i also uh, hinted at this logical relation between creation and covenant i think it is very clear here from the way that the confession presents this and i think it's just you know true is what arises from a plain reading of the scriptural text to man is created under the law and that is prior to covenant you know you can even read the account like god creates man And then once he is created, he gives the terms of the covenant that you shall not eat of the tree in Genesis 2, for if on the day you do, you shall surely die. So that's why we make that distinction. So the law is fundamental. It is basic in this creation in God's image of man. Yeah, I think I, I think I mentioned, uh, last time, um, as well that we have to understand um, the law and its relation to uh, revelation uh, in the revealing of God's will. Like there's there's God's uh, hidden uh, will, we, we call it. There's there's God's decrees, the things that he says shall be as he's a sovereign God over everything. He knows everything that's going to happen because he ordains them for happen before uh, the foundations of the earth. We don't know all that, though. We only know what's revealed through uh, his word and by the spirit and those things that which are necessary for salvation. Uh, this being the case, we don't know God's hidden decrees, his purposes for why he does things for what he is about to do. We don't know. We won't ever know that full picture because we won't know the mind of God in its entirety. Only God does. But we do know his revealed will and that revealed will is uh, through his law. That law is God's own holiness or morality. It's based in God's holiness. Um, this is why we say the law uh, is an eternal thing, you know, and, and so the, the, the law is before the fall because it's then afterwards that you need the gospel because there has to be that restoration. 
Andrew, if, if we could point out here, uh, we've been using the term knowledge, right? Uh, and this, this knowledge of God. How would we, uh, how could we define this knowledge? What, what kind of knowledge are we talking about? And, and what does that do? So when we are talking about the knowledge of God, and I mean, if you listen back to our, our old Bobcast archive, mm-hmm. I mean, we spent several chapters mm-hmm. and several months talking about what constitutes the knowledge of God. Uh, but in this case, as we're talking about, you know, the knowledge of God before the fall, it is the revelation that God exists and that God has implanted on the hearts of man a moral law, and man is accountable to him in it. Uh, but it is more than that. It is also that uh, God has blessed man in certain ways, given him the world, given him dominion over the world, given him the ability to work the garden and keep it and to rule over the creatures and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All these things are comprehended uh, even before covenants. So, so here, what you're saying is it's uh, even though say the Westminster confession uses uh, the word say uh, reason, we're not talking about just uh, an intellectual understanding, but a, or an intellectual um, knowledge, but a, a whole, uh, a holistic knowledge, a a whole person, um, from from the head and the heart, and and displayed through uh, actions and course of living, an understanding of God, uh, or the understanding uh, of of one's self in relation to God, in relation to uh, one's neighbor, and in relation uh, to the world around us, to, to to creation. So it's understanding one's state and standing. As a human standing before uh, a God and this world around us, and therefore there 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 is then a a knowledge or a right knowledge that comes before the fall. Man had to have known God. Adam had to have known God, and so did Eve, um, because the, he alone is this this the source of of existence and the satisfaction of one's existence. And so what the, what the fall does then is uh, a uh, which we'll get into more here in just a moment. Uh, the fall is a shattering of that understanding of one's existence and state. It is a blinding to the things of God, uh, in a, in a corruption of our understanding of ourselves and what we're supposed to do in this world. And so when, when knowledge, when knowledge comes in, in the renewal, uh, we emphasize that word renewal, um, through the Holy Spirit, Knowledge is renewed and then and then causing the scales, so to speak, um, from falling off the eyes, causing one to see again and, and to know uh, one's fallen state and uh, and to know that uh, they are lost apart from God's means of delivering us, which is Jesus Christ through faith alone. Yeah, absolutely. So important in this nature grace discussion from a reform perspective, it's not only creation and fall, but what is lost in the fall and how it is given back. And so there are some divergent views even mm-hmm. yeah, in the reform camp among like, uh, what is the image of God and what is lost in the fall? Like for instance, Meredith Quine, who if you're familiar with, 
our past work. You probably know I'm not a huge fan of Meredith Quine. Uh, I think he's kind of messed some things up. And, and I think we need to, just as a my own tangent, we need to be honest about this. Right now, it's the 100th anniversary of Quine's birth, and there's been a lot of accolades and tributes and conferences and stuff about Quine. Sometimes Quine was uh, innovative and speculative in some ways that I think aren't helpful and I think kind of knock us off of our Reformed confessional theology and foundations. And this is one of those issues, is he takes the view that when God says, let us make man in our image, he it is God taking counsel with his divine counsel of uh, himself, but also angels. And so then... God, and this is a increasingly popular view, it's based on study of ancient Near East practices and documents and stuff, but I don't think it really uh, comports with the biblical evidence or, you know, the history of Christian doctrine or anything of that sort. But anyway, the idea is then, so God is created, or man is created in the image of God and the angels, and that that image is a judiciary capacity that comes from these angels who are beings in God's counsel who judge. Now, the discussion of this can get pretty detailed and technical, but even just from the biblical evidence already presented, I mentioned texts in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 that talk about the image of God as restored, makes it something far greater than just this judicial capacity. And then there's also the issue of when you say created in the image of God and angels, I think that opens up a lot of issues regarding the regarding anthropology and the constitution of man that I think are problematic, but that's a bit of a side tangent, but also just showing one potential issue and divergent view as we approach this issue. Yeah, and, and that gives a good introduction to a broad issue of what you call the capacity view, any kind of capacity view of, of uh, man uh, being made in the image of God. Um, by judiciary capacity, you're meaning that in, in a sense, man is a, a legal creature, an ethical creature primarily. And so there, there's something of a, a emphasis then uh, on the image of God being simply the ability to choose um, right and wrong, right? In, in, in this, uh, to, to be able to choose uh, goodness or wickedness, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a, that's a fair explanation of the position. But based on what we've already seen, I mean, it is more than mere ability to choose or recognize right and wrong. There's this righteousness and holiness, this true righteousness and holiness and knowledge that uh, permeates the whole man, that permeates all of life uh, beyond just, you know, making ethical choices and decisions. So, and and, and that's that's just precisely what uh, what you're saying, then, that, that issue, that ethical it's an ethical emphasis that man has uh, uh that the, the the primary part of man's being made in the image of god is a exercise of the will it is a it's it's a um having uh this desire that desire that disposition or this disposition it it is uh a focus on what is lost primarily is the will and leaves something of an optimistic um, view of the use of uh, the intellect, the reason, the mind, and a somewhat optimistic view of then uh, affections, emotions, and whatnot. 
So you, you, you get other issues with other capacity views, ones that could so emphasize, uh, you know, the intellect was the, the intellectual capacity was the primary thing of, of man, uh, the primary image of God. This could tend towards a certain rationalistic view or uh, just the emotions, uh, the affections are, are the capacity view. So you can have one uh, – you can have an element so emphasized to the detriment of, of uh, or reduction of the other aspects of, of man's uh, what we call faculties, right, of, of uh, his attributes of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, Another common issue, actually, I think that would be good to bring up really quick is perhaps uh, maybe even more popular uh, as a whole is um, ideas that come from a 4th century uh, British monk, uh, Pelagius, who thought that uh, man wasn't created good or evil, but really uh, neutral. Uh, man was a, a blank tablet, a, a tabula rasa, he would say having nothing written on him. He starts off as basically a, a, a total clean slate, not being inclined to good or bad, and uh, that that any um, uh, vices or virtue, anything good or bad that man does or has in himself is acquired through practice, through imitation, in, 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 uh, built up by one's environment. So his idea of the, the image of God is that it's just normal, normal, natural qualities of man, uh, at least internally. You would also believe then that, that Adam was created mortal with death. And so death is a natural consequence, not a, a result of sin. Those are fairly common views still, but it is reducing man to a basically a, a, a totally worldly creature uh, the things that happen after the fall, the results of the fall, uh, are already there from the beginning in Pelagius's view. Which you can kind of see influences and undergirds to a certain extent the Roman Catholic view that nature, at least, is essentially the same after the fall as it was before. All that's really changed is the loss of that super-added gift. Right. I mentioned last time, um, uh, in this way, you have super- nature the the supernatural things uh, as an alternate uh, an alternative reality to the things of this creation this life so yeah that that i would say that that's that's something that comports well with roman catholicism um and it also works well with uh certain liberal or modern ideas of the, of theology uh that are you know complementary or kind to the ideas of charles darwin in evolution yeah. It's a naturalistic view of uh, what man is. And basically, man is like the rest of the creatures. Yeah. And not the gem of man's creation. You, you get that same thing with what you brought up with the angels, too. Does man have uh, a share in the image of God with angels? Well, we, we won't get into it. But I mean, is man not the gem of creation? What would this mean, then, if angels are also made in the image of God, which scripture does not say? Um, so we, we could leave that question hanging, not particularly address it. But I think that that lays out the problem um, pretty, I think, pretty well. Maybe just to uh, provoke some more thought on that, some other questions to leave open pertaining to that. If man is created in the image of angels, how do you deal with things like uh, fallen man has a redeemer, but fallen angels don't or, or a mediator or hope of salvation? It just opens up a lot of these kind of 
odd and speculative issues when we want to go there, but we don't really have the time, nor is it really on our topic. Right. And speaking of not having time, we are out of time for this week's episode of Once for All Delivered. We hope you'll join us again next time where we'll take up this topic again of grace renewing nature, and we will look at how this applies to the fall and to redemption. So you don't want to miss that. If you have any questions, as always, you can reach us on social media at OFAD Podcast. You can visit our website at onceforalldelivered.com. We're running it on Substack, so if you want to support the show, there's options for you to do that and help us with the costs of putting this on. And we still need a pithy ending phrase, so we would definitely love to hear your ideas for our pithy ending catchphrase. And so, until next time, here's a placeholder for a pithy sign-off phrase. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.